You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. This episode is brought to you by our Patreon members. Thank you so much. You're the reason this podcast is still going. If everyone who listened to this podcast gave just $1 a month, we could both turn this podcast into a full-time job and be certain that we could keep it going throughout the pandemic and keep bringing you more episodes. It would be a win for everyone. If you're not a member and you're able to donate, go to patreon.com slash ancienthistoryfangirl. Members get ad-free episodes, extra episodes about fascinating topics, and hilarious, mostly drunken conversations we've had with other podcasters and guests. Go to patreon.com slash ancienthistoryfangirl and sign up today to join the fun. And there be eunuchs, which have made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven's sake. Jenny Williamson. And I'm Jen McMenemy. And this is Ancient History Fangirl. This series, Gender Rebels of Ancient Greece and Rome, is a deep dive into the lives and realities of queer people in ancient Greece and Rome, a heavily patriarchal culture with rigid gender roles, which tried hard to erase queer people and experiences that did not reinforce patriarchal control. We started this series with an examination of queer women in the ancient world. We then explored the lives of trans men and women both living courageously visible lives and existing below the radar. Then we explored the disturbing realities of intersex people in the ancient world. One intersex philosopher, Favorinus, came into prominence during Hadrian's reign. He lived from around 80 to 160 AD. We connected his rise to that of the court eunuch in the imperial courts, and today we're going to look at the lives of eunuchs in more detail. Eunuchs as we know them today may not be that common, especially not in Western society. But in ancient Rome, there were a lot of eunuchs. Some were enslaved, some were free, some were members of religious cults, and some were not. They were perhaps the most visible and common type of queer people in the Roman Empire. No study of queer history in ancient Greece and Rome would be complete without them. But eunuchs didn't originate in ancient Greece and Rome. Castration is a far more ancient tradition than either of those cultures. Perhaps the earliest record we have for intentional castration was found in Sumer in the 2000s BC. This is the time and place where we find the Gala, the priestesses of Inanna, who may also have been castrated, although that's not 100% for sure. In Egypt, around the same time, mentions of eunuchs were made on execration texts. These were names of your enemies written on ritual objects like clay tablets, bowls or vases, 
which were ritually broken, smashed, stabbed, speared, spat on, peed on, locked in a box, all of the above, and then buried. This was a kind of sympathetic magic you could use to harm your enemies. I mean, that sounds like it would do it. (laughs) You are covering so many bases there. I know. In ancient Assyria, from around the 850s to 622 BC, men were castrated as a punishment for sexual crimes, usually, as far as I can tell, either sex with other men or sex with other men's wives. In China, the earliest eunuchs were castrated for crimes. The practice may have begun during the Shang Dynasty, which started in the 1600s BC, but maybe even older. Castrated criminals were often subsequently enslaved and made to participate in large state projects like the making of the Terracotta Warriors, which date from around 210 to 209 BC. Political or palace eunuchs who played an important role in governing were a vaunted tradition that seems to have developed either independently or due to cultural exchange in places such as ancient Egypt, the Achaemenid Persian Empire, Imperial China, and in other parts of the world. Later on, this tradition grew to be prevalent in the Byzantine Empire, whose traditions arose out of the Eastern Roman Empire. Eunuchs existed all over the ancient world, and they were an incredibly diverse group. There were many different kinds of eunuchs. Depending on what kind of castration procedure was done, the age of castration, and the reason for the procedure. In the two episodes that we have on this, we're going to focus mostly on eunuchs in Greece and Rome, especially Rome. That's because this is such an incredibly broad topic that we have to narrow it down somehow. The word eunuch itself comes from ancient Greek. The earliest mention of the word in writing that we know of occurred in the 6th century BC by a poet named Hipponax, who loved to invent compound words. So it may have been his invention, although this isn't proven. Later, scholars from the 5th century AD, a thousand years later, speculated that it might have meant guarding the bed. That's interesting. I I would kind of like to know the breakdown of that more. What two words mean guarding of the bed that make up eunuch? I'm not 100% sure, but what was interesting to me about it was that this is a 6th century BC word, and the people commenting on what it means appear to be all a thousand years later, like from the 500s AD. There's a lot of speculation there, and it might have more to do with things that eunuchs are known for now than what they were known for then. And their roles across different cultures, too. Yeah. So we're going to talk about some real gross genital mutilation throughout most of this episode. This is your warning. Yeah, so in this episode, we are going to talk about the details of how people underwent castration. And we're not doing this because we want to fetishize it and we're not doing it for shock value. We realize that these details may be very disturbing to some people, but we feel like it's really important to cover this because this would have been part of a certain type of queer experience in the ancient world that would have been quite common. And we don't want to erase that. Yeah, and all that being said, these details will be disturbing to some people. We will try to give you warnings where this is going to happen. Yeah, this paragraph is is where we get dark, you guys. There were many different ways to make a eunuch in the ancient world. In perhaps the most extreme method, both the penis and testicles were removed, usually from one blow with a very sharp knife. This was perhaps the most traumatic and dangerous method. We've seen numbers saying that one in three men who went through this procedure died. I've come across some very detailed descriptions of how this was done, but I'm going to spare you guys that because this wasn't a method that the ancient Greeks and Romans typically used. From what I can see, it was more common in Imperial China. So Paul of Agena, a physician from the 7th century AD, probably working from ancient sources, 
described two ways to castrate someone that were both commonly practiced in ancient Rome. And again, this is going to get pretty graphic, and we are dealing with children specifically in some of this. Again, if this is going to be disturbing to you guys, you might want to maybe just skip the whole episode. I don't know. This is going to get bad. (laughs) Yeah, it's going to get real bad, and it doesn't get better. I think that it gets real bad in the next episode, but it's also pretty hairy in this one. So anyway, he described two ways to castrate somebody that were both commonly practiced in ancient Rome. One was for adults, and one was for children. One involved crushing or compression of the testicles, and this was primarily done on children who were enslaved. It's really fucked up. Another was excision, cutting off the testicles entirely, preventing blood loss using a tight clamp, or making an incision in the sack and popping the testicles out. Both of these types were more likely to be done in adults, and in ancient Greece and Rome, especially early on, That usually meant religious eunuchs. Paul tells us that excision was the preferred method because people who had their testicles crushed out of existence often suffered from venereal disease later on. Before we get into what it was like to be a eunuch in ancient Greece and Rome and all the types of eunuchs there were and what their lives were like from what we can tell, I want to spend a little time on the gender and sexuality of eunuchs because this season is all about sex magic and this subseries is about gender. Before I started this series, I kind of assumed, and I've talked about this in the last episode too, that most eunuchs could be considered more or less, I guess, cisgender men who had had their testicles or maybe both testicles and penis removed in a medical procedure. That wasn't necessarily how the Greeks and Romans saw things. The ancient Romans had a word, spado, that they used to mean any type of non-sexual or non-reproducing man. Spedones could also include celibate or asexual men, or those with non-working testicles due to injury or a health condition. It's actually kind of complicated to parse out how eunuch's gender was seen in the ancient world, and this can vary widely depending on region, the time period, and even the individual eunuch's socioeconomic position. Some people from ancient Greece and Rome wrote about eunuchs like they were a sort of third gender, neither men nor women. But others believed that there were levels of manhood and that eunuchs were seen as a lesser, more quote-unquote feminine version of a man because there had to be a hierarchy of manhood. That masculinity is so toxic, we are still dealing with the nuclear toxic fallout even now. The gender construction is so very fragile that they have to make sure everyone knows what level of the gender hierarchy they're on. You have to perform manhood it's something you can lose again you have to be the impenetrable penetrator right like that's all you can be if you're not that then what are you i mean this is so dark it's so toxic and it's just still infecting our modern society well if you're not the impenetrable penetrator you're a woman or you're a dominated man which is like a feminized man or you're enslaved which is a whole nother level of stripping away identity and personhood it is. It's dark. Let's let's just keep going, pushing forward, because I didn't know a lot of this stuff. And I do think one of the things that Jenny has done so brilliantly in the series is she's given us a lot of stories and a lot of historical context that a lot of people don't know. Like, it just is not the history we talk about in the books. And that's a real shame because these people existed, they lived, they had lives, and they deserve to have their stories told. I agree. Anyway, so I was trying to explain the very complicated idea of gender for eunuchs in ancient Greece and Rome as far as I could perceive it. So basically, there were several different ways eunuchs were perceived gender-wise, and this depended on a lot of factors. It may also have been cultural from different cultural regions and time periods in ancient Greece and Rome. They were sometimes seen as a third gender, 
They were sometimes seen as a cisgender man, but a lesser or feminized version of one. And sometimes there was this perception that manhood wasn't necessarily something you were born to so much as something you were transformed into at puberty. Shout out to all those transformation stories that we told you in previous episodes. And if you failed that transformation, quote unquote, that's how you got women and eunuchs is basically one line of reasoning that crops up sometimes. I mean, you can fail to transform. And then there's the question of how eunuchs would have identified their own gender which may have been different than how society saw them. This is probably just as varied as gender identity in non-eunuchs. We've seen some historians refer to castration in the ancient world as a form of gender affirmation surgery, which for some people, this may have been the truth. There were people who underwent castration and then lived as women. The Galli, who we've talked about before, are a prominent example. But there were also people who chose to be castrated, generally in adulthood, for reasons that had little to nothing to do with gender. These were usually also members of religious cults. There were a number of religions in ancient Greece and Rome where castration was either a requirement or a sacred ritual for their most devoted worshippers. Like, it could be optional or it could be required, and sometimes we don't know which it was. In addition, later in the empire, undergoing castration was kind of a job requirement. Some very highly placed positions, those closest to the emperor, were exclusively for eunuchs. There were people who deliberately had themselves castrated to qualify for certain jobs. However, not all who underwent castration did so willingly. It was also done non-consensually to slaves, usually to prepubescent boys in childhood, to preserve their youth and their beauty. It's dark. Anyway. These youthful and beautiful boys would then be sold as expensive sex slaves to wealthy men in a very exclusive slave market. And yes, as I've already alluded to, the topic gets very dark. It's possibly the darkest one we've covered this series, and that's saying a lot. It's been a dark series. So in this episode, we're going to look at religious eunuchs in ancient Greece and Rome, those who chose to undergo castration willingly for the sake of their religion and sometimes also their gender. So yeah, as Jenny said, this is the lighter of the two episodes we're going to talk about on eunuchs. Of course, we don't really know the circumstances around why people joined religious cults. Were some of them coerced? It's really hard to say, but we're assuming here that most people who joined joined religions that had this as a requirement or that had this as part of it did so willingly. They weren't forced or enslaved, as far as we know. So, in our episode about trans people in ancient Greece and Rome, we told you about the Galli, priestesses of the goddess Sibyl who were a very visible presence on the streets of Rome and throughout the empire. And they were absolutely gender rebels in this very patriarchal culture. They really did everything they could to stand out. They were just like, fuck you. And I just love them for it. I'm very grateful that you found their story and told it to me and then brought it to the podcast as a topic to cover because I did not know about them. And again, that's one of the reasons I'm so proud of this series because there are so many things and I thought I knew a whole bunch about the ancient world that you have taught me. Well, thank you, Jen. (laughs) Aw. You're welcome. So part of their religion included castration, according to the ancient sources, and some say it was self-castration. Some traditions say that the Gala castrated themselves during a festival in March called the Day of Blood. And there's a lot of ancient Roman hyperbole and probably grossly exaggerated writing about how they did this because it comes to us from Lucian the Satirist. The Satirist Lucian describes transgender priestesses almost identical to the Gauli active in Syria 
who worshipped Atargatis, a Syrian mermaid goddess of love and fertility. According to him, they castrated themselves with a dull sword at the height of a frenzied religious ritual, and then ran wild through the town, throwing their severed bits into people's houses. So this is almost definitely hyperbole, right? It's just, it's not medically possible that you'd survive doing this to yourself this way. But we do have some archaeological evidence about how the procedure actually worked for the Gale. And I will say, we haven't looked into it yet. We'll probably look into it next season. But there's a lot that we know and don't know about the sort of ancient pharmaceuticals and sort of like drugs that people were taking during these festivals. Absolutely. I mean, my my sense of things is that there were a lot of pharmaceuticals that people were taking to facilitate a lot of ancient world religions and rituals. And that could have been part of it here and part of it in other religions, too. I mean, there's even, you know, if you look at ancient Christianity, there's language around that that seems like it was derived from the transformation of taking pharmaceuticals during religious rituals, which is something I would love to dive into. Um, And here's where I'm going to talk about the details of castration again. So tune out for a little bit if you don't want to hear about it. So the Galai underwent this as adults. And according to Paula Vagina, this means a kind of excision. One way to do this that was pretty common involved stopping blood flow to the testicles using a tight clamp. The clamp might cut off blood flow and then the testicles could be removed with a knife. So we have archaeological evidence that this method was used. In 1840, a set of clamps was found buried in the mud of the Thames in Britain. It dates from the 2nd or perhaps 3rd century AD. The priestesses of Sybil were widespread throughout the Roman Empire, even in Britain. The grave of a Gaulite priestess was found not far from Hadrian's Wall. The clamps that they found are very ornate. Their outside edges are decorated with the heads of gods, planetary deities. There are also the heads of animals such as lions, bulls, and horses. The inside edges are serrated. They operate kind of like a walnut cracker, which is awful, with an ornate ring at the top. The shanks show evidence of being well used. The right side was broken and fixed again in Roman times, and the clamp showed signs of significant wear and tear. Here's how historians think this happened. And again, this is where we, this is where we really get into it. This quote is from the article on a Romano-British castration clamp used in the rites of Sybil by Dr. Alfred G. Francis in the section of History of Medicine. Quote, The subject, having been placed on his back, with the thighs widely abducted, the clamp was opened, the penis passed through the oval ring, and the testes and fundus scroti drawn forward between the serrated surfaces. The clamp was then firmly closed and the closure maintained by revolving the nut on the connecting bar until it touched the handle. By the presence of the oval ring, the penis was fully protected from pressure and kept out of the way of the operator, and a larger amount of the scrotum with its contents was firmly clamped. Complete control of all the blood vessels with perfect adjustment of the severed edges of the skin of the scrotum was secured at the same time. The testicles and fundus of the scrotum in front of the clamp were then removed by a rapid stroke with a knife. The blood vessels of the stumps of the right and left testicles were then perhaps closed by the application of the actual cautery. After this, possibly a few sutures of flax were passed by means of a bronze needle. The operation could be performed very rapidly. The danger was mainly from hemorrhage. Difficulty and delay were super added by the tendency of the cut edges of the scrotum to retract and roll in, and of the stumps of the severed spermatic cords with their bleeding vessels to retract out of reach. It will be noticed how admirably these difficulties have been appreciated and met in the design of this instrument. So, just to boil that down, 
This is what I think this means. You would slide the penis through the ring at the top of the clamps to keep it out of the way. Then you would slice off the testicles with a quick stroke of a knife, cauterize the wound, and then sew it together very quickly to prevent excessive bleeding. So those castrated in this way would have had it done after puberty. Puberty doesn't get erased with castration, but castration does cause a large drop in testosterone, which would have caused certain bodily changes. Those castrated in adulthood would have a much less powerful sex drive. They could still get erections and even ejaculate, but the frequency, strength, and duration of erections would be diminished. Those castrated in adulthood could also experience vertigo, hot flashes, reduced body hair, and could even grow breasts, feminine presenting breasts. So this type of castration would have come along with a more feminized appearance for some people. The Galai, of course, were not the only religious group that underwent this. There were others. Another group of religious eunuchs were the, I, I know I'm going to mispronounce this, I'm sorry, the Megabizoi. I do not pronounce ancient Greek, I'm sorry. Megabizoi. Priests of Artemis who worked at the Temple of Artemis at Ephesus, which was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. So the temple itself is worth a deep dive. It was located in Ephesus, which was at that time considered part of Greece, but in modern times it's actually in Turkey. Ephesus was an ancient Greek city, and the site of the temple was even more ancient. Writers of the time thought it was founded by the Amazons. There's archaeological evidence of a temple of some type on the location that dates back to the Bronze Age. The Temple of Artemis was famous in its time. It was known for being huge, elaborate, a miracle of architecture, and stunningly beautiful, a building that outshone the Parthenon. But the version of Artemis worshipped there was very different than the virginal huntress we're familiar with. As with a lot of instances of Greek gods being worshipped in areas outside of Greece itself, Artemis was combined with a local indigenous goddess. The Ephesian Artemis was not a virgin huntress, but a very distinctive fertility goddess whose torso was covered with dozens of egg-shaped breasts. She's so cool looking. I know Jenny will put a picture of her on the show notes and I'll make sure I put it up on our social as well, but she is like nothing you would have thought of for Artemis. She's so cool. Her priests, the Megabizoi, I'm so sorry to anyone who knows how to pronounce this, were eunuchs. Strabo tells us that it was a great honor to be selected to serve as one, and they were always in search of those who were worthy of that honor. The eunuch priests were served by assistants who were young virgin girls, and they weren't locals. They were usually from other places, although he's not specific about what other places these might be. <laughs> It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. 
If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Castration was also a part of early Christianity. In fact, there's a line in the New Testament that some devotees understood as Jesus telling people to castrate themselves. It's in the Gospel of Matthew. I have literally never heard of this before, but Jenny has. In it, Jesus is talking about how divorce is wrong. Jesus is saying that God makes men and women one flesh when they marry, and thus divorce is basically impossible. Men who divorce their wives and marry someone else should be considered adulterers. No mention of wives who divorce their husbands. I mean, I did know that Catholicism wasn't a big fan of divorce. Still not a big fan. In the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus' audience thinks that this advice is rather extreme. And most cultures at that time did have an option for divorce or separation, usually for men, or at least it was a lot easier for men. Yeah, because women are still property. Who are they going to go back to if there's a divorce? They go back to their father's house. I mean, we saw how this worked with um, Diophantus in the last episode. Yeah, but that only works if your father's still alive. Like, what if your father isn't alive? What do you do with that woman? I guess you go back to one of your relatives' houses. Hopefully you have other relatives. If you didn't have other relatives, you'd probably wind up destitute or a sex worker or something like that, possibly enslaved. It could get bad. Jesus is audience here is a bunch of dudes who are used to the idea that there's some kind of out for marriage, at least for them. So this is kind of, kind of different. And they were all kind of looking at Jesus like, are you serious, man? Seriously? Their response was that if that was how marriage was, if it really was impossible to divorce, you and your spouse became one flesh, maybe it was better not to marry at all. And Jesus kind of shrugs at this. He's he's not deterred. He's like, literally, if that's how you feel about marriage and women, like, maybe you're not meant for this. And that's the revolutionary part is he's telling men just don't have sex then, which nobody did back then. So Jesus kind of shrugs at this and he says, yeah, some people just aren't cut out for marriage. And to be clear, he thinks that those who don't get married should be absolutely celibate. He drives this point home saying, quote, for there are some eunuchs who were so born from their mother's womb, and there were some eunuchs who were made eunuchs of men, and there be eunuchs which have made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven's sake. He that is able to receive it, meaning the blessing of marriage, let him receive it. And that's from the King James Bible. So Jesus is referring to eunuchs in the sense of that ancient Latin term, the spado. In this passage, some eunuchs are born, meaning they have a health condition. Some were castrated by others after birth, probably enslaved people, and others chose castration, quote, for the kingdom of heaven's sake. And that's basically a sum up of who eunuchs were in the ancient world, right? Some of them did it for religious reasons. Some of them were enslaved and didn't have a choice. And if you're considering the spado definition, some of them were born with a health condition that we might call intersex today, but that would be understood as being a eunuch back then. Yeah, exactly. So in the context of this conversation about divorce and adultery, the usual interpretation is that Jesus is saying, if you're not cut out for marriage, be celibate. But some in the ancient world took this line more literally. 
If you're not cut out for marriage, get yourself castrated. That's not what he was saying at all. I mean, he did use the word eunuch a lot. (laughs) He did use the word eunuch a lot. That's not what he meant. He said eunuchs like five times in that sentence. He did, but knowing what I know about like ancient Christianity and even like some Catholicism, the point of it is if you're not going to be married, then you have to be celibate and you have to suffer with that choice. That's coming up, Jen. I know. I'm just going to jump in and say it. You know I am. And I just want to point out what's interesting about this passage is that Jesus is telling men that they have to be celibate. I mean, this is weirdly kind of woke for this time period. I don't want to say that this is feminist, but look, okay, look, I know everyone's going to disagree with me on this, but I'm, I'm just saying for the time period, like the way that sexuality was dealt with prior to this is that women had to be absolutely faithful to their husbands and men got out. Having sex with someone other than your wife was not even considered adultery if it was an enslaved person or if it was a hetera. Men could do that as much as they wanted. Like, men were not ever expected to be completely celibate or completely faithful to their wives ever. And Jesus is saying, no, actually, men have to be absolutely faithful like women. I kind of get why women were drawn to early Christianity, because he's kind of making it a little bit more equal in that way. And obviously, you know, this all leads to purity culture and it's really fucked up. It's controlling women's sexuality and men's sexuality as opposed to letting men and women have sexual agency. But when you look at men's sexual agency in the ancient world, it was like awfully rapey and coercive. Like the entire gender binary in ancient Greece and Rome was essentially like sexual coercion and dominance and sometimes rape. So I can kind of see why this would be attractive to some people, especially women. Look, there's a real reason that this is attractive. And I think one of the things to think about with early Christianity and how it spread was much like other cults like Dionysus and stuff. It really found its following amongst enslaved people and marginalized people. And there's something about this where it's like you should have your family, care about that family, want to take care of that family or not have a family. You know, if you want to have that commitment to someone else, you should be committed to them. And you can see how that would really matter and make a difference, particularly amongst women who have never had a husband who is supposed to feel that way about them because they're property. It's just saying there's a little bit more of equality. There's a lot here that's kind of subversive and also making a family. The problem is like there's some good teachings here. There's some dark people who lead things. Well, yeah. And I think that that's how it got corrupted, you know, is that Christianity went from a really marginal religion to the dominant religion of ancient Rome. And one of the things that it had to do, and again, I have not done a deep dive on this. So this is basically just me talking out of my ass about some documentaries I've seen and some books I've read. But my understanding is what Christianity had to do to achieve that dominant position was align itself more with the sexual mores of the time, which involved suppressing women. So as it rose, you started seeing more of an emphasis on suppressing women and saying women couldn't be in public roles and all of that stuff. And it had to adopt those values in order to be dominant in ancient Rome, because culturally, it had to align more with how the Romans wanted to dominate how they saw the family, which was women were subordinate. But also, like, it did impose this expectation on men to be sexually faithful, which is really revolutionary for its time. And if you look at our Hetera series, 
when we saw how men, even wealthy men, would sometimes get these attachments to these high-profile sex workers and then spend a lot of the family's resources on them as opposed to on the wife and the kids. And basically, that would pit the women of their household against the satira. But I could see why a lot of women would like this message, that men have to be faithful the same way they do. It allows a more equality with women who are now not competing with each other, because in theory, your husband should not be looking outside the house. And I think that the revolutionary thing is that instead of a woman having sort of fraught relationships with other women in their sphere, particularly in their household, it kind of gives a more equality. Because in theory, we are not all competing for the same man's attention and not able to be replaced should someone else earn his affection. Okay, I'm just going to add as a counterpoint, this doesn't mean that people always lived up to this perfectly. And there's, of course, a horrible double standard about men getting to sleep with whoever and women being hussies for doing that. And that still continues today. And of course, there were competing cultural influences as well. There was always a double standard. And unfortunately, women throughout time have been stuck in in the patriarchy, which is desperate to pit women against women. Yeah. And of course, there's a lot about ancient and modern Christianity that basically is... (laughs) It is the patriarchy now. But I, I'm just saying in this in this time, in this place, at the very, very beginning of Christianity, specifically what Jesus is saying here is weirdly woke for the time. And it's weird to notice that. So anyway, perhaps the best known early Christian who took that passage where Jesus said eunuch like five or six times and then looked all confused when people started castrating themselves, extremely literally, was Origen of Alexandria. He lived from 184 to 253 AD. His father was a Roman citizen, a fairly wealthy member of the upper middle class, and an openly practicing Christian, who had a small library of Greek books, which would have been very expensive back then. It's speculated that Origen's mother, who didn't have a name in this story because women don't have names, was probably from a lower rank in society and not a citizen herself. He was the oldest of nine children. So in 202 AD, Emperor Septimius Severus decreed that all Roman citizens who were Christian should be rounded up and put to death. And this is a thing that would periodically happen throughout the mid to late empire as Christianity was kind of jockeying for position with older religious traditions. There would be this sort of whack-a-mole situation where one emperor would declare that all the Christians should be rounded up and put to death. And then someone else would come into control who would declare that actually Christianity is now the state religion and all the pagans should be rounded up and put to death. So it was basically every 10 years or so and maybe even every couple years in some periods. So it was kind of dangerous to practice a religion publicly. And you see this throughout the history of Christianity. Like you can just go to the Tudors where you've got all the Protestants need to be burned during Queen Mary's reign, and then you've got Elizabeth I, who's like, nah, let's get rid of them Catholics. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? 
It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. So, where I was in this story... In 202 AD, Emperor Septimius Severus decreed that all Roman citizens who were Christians should be rounded up and put to death. So Septimius Severus has made this decree that Christianity was out. All the Christians have to be rounded up and put to death. Leonidas, who was Origen's father, was arrested and thrown into prison. Origen was just 16, and he wanted to go and turn himself in to be executed along with his dad. His mother hid all his clothes, and Origen stayed in the house out of shame of being outside naked. Thus, she saved his life. So here we have the vaunted traditions of sexual shame and martyrdom in one small paragraph. Yeah, and also, if you take it from, like, him wanting to be a martyr, the mother has prevented that. Therefore, she's a bad woman, because a righteous woman would have let him go out and be martyred. So there's the demonization of women kids. Because they're being selfish, because if they really cared, she would have let him go. Right, because then he'd get into heaven, right? Isn't that what you're supposed to want for your child? You are, but you're also supposed to want him to go out there and, like, be a person of the belief and, and stand by his convictions and what he believes, right? The mother is thinking things like, if you go out there and die also, you are the eldest male in the family. Who's going to look after all of these children who we have had and who will need a male protector? Once again, it falls to the women. One of the most interesting martyrs is um, Sir Thomas More. When Henry VIII is making Protestantism the state religion, he's got an advisor called Sir Thomas More who had a lot of children. He was very Catholic. He refused to give up his faith. And Henry VIII has to have him executed. And he goes back and forth and back and forth over it because he doesn't want to execute him. And he just says, like, I don't care if you practice your religion in private. Just don't do it in public. And Thomas More is like, no, I'm sorry, like, I'm going to live out and proud. And his family's like, do you have to? Because you're also Catholic and there's a lot of us. Anyway, he winds up getting executed and the family's destituted. You know, they're left with nothing. And that's exactly what happens to Leonidas's family in the ancient world. Like, you can see it repeating. From the atheist perspective here looking in, I'm just like, well, this just doesn't benefit anybody. This is the, the selfish move is being a giant martyr about things and, you know, getting yourself executed and leaving your family to suffer. So as someone who grew up very religious, I remember seeing, particularly this is well done in the TV show, The Tudors, but I remember seeing it and feeling very strongly about it because growing up, I was like, well, he did the right thing. Like, you don't renounce your faith. This is something you believe in really strongly. And then I saw this show in my 20s and I was like, what a selfish dick. Like, honestly, Jesus doesn't say you have to have your religion out and proud. Maybe he does later on, but like, I didn't see that anywhere. I was like, you could have your religion. You could still practice it. You could still live and raise your family. And instead, you're leaving all of them destitute to fend for themselves. You know, your problems are over, but theirs aren't. Exactly. I see it as an utter dick move. I mean, again, I was very conflicted because growing up, I really kind of idolized and saw that as the right move. And then when I became someone who was married and had people who depended on me, I was like, I don't know that it's the right move. Like, I don't know that dooming my family to being destitute is the right thing for me to follow. Anyway. All this is to say that actually we see this really early in the Roman Empire because after Leonidas is executed, the Roman Empire confiscated all the family's belongings. And Origen, 
his eight siblings, and his mom were rendered destitute. Origen was radicalized by this experience. He was destitute, but also highly educated. And Christianity, despite the bans, was still quite fashionable. And, you know, as we said before, it didn't stay banned for long. Origen got a post teaching at a catechetical school of Alexandria. And from there, he went on to attract the interest of wealthy benefactors with his impressive writing and austere, strictly disciplined lifestyle. Oh, yeah, he was an early Christian with very, a lot of fasting. He was living that lifestyle at people. Mm-hmm. Origen was a vegetarian, something very rare in the ancient Roman and Greek world. He didn't drink, and he fasted all the time. And of course, he swore off sex. But he went one farther. According to his main biographer, Eusebius, Origen paid a physician to remove his testicles, so he could continue to be an instructor of both men and women without any breath of scandal. Origen taught wealthy men and women, and some of his wealthy benefactors were women, and, you know, he's just doing it for their modesty. That is not what Jesus said. <laughs> Jesus said eunuch like six times. <laughs> the point is to suffer. <laughs> he said eunuch a lot. That is literally what he said. <laughs> you clearly didn't grow up Catholic. The point is to suffer and like deny your urges. <laughs> the guy said eunuch like he was pounding it right in. <laughs> yeah, I think he was pounding it in saying like, I'm not going to say no to eunuchs who want to convert to my religion. I'm just saying. That's not what he was saying. He was saying, listen, some guys are eunuchs for this reason. Some guys are eunuchs for this reason. Some guys are eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven's sake. If you don't want to get married, be a eunuch. I mean, it's true. I see how the confusion happened. Jen sees this as just all a big misunderstanding. I think it's all a big misunderstanding because the reality is when you get into later Christianity, the whole thing is about the suffering or at least later Catholicism. <laughs> yeah. And, and here's another thing to point out. Like women were instrumental to early Christianity's rise. Like before it became the jerk ass state cult, it was like really driven on the ground by women like wealthy women were the ones who brought it from a really marginalized religion to having a little bit more influence and supported it and protected it when there were all these bans do you know why because like it reminds me of the temperance movement you know there was a lot for women to get out of this religion yeah because there were certain protections in christianity for women not being at the sexual mercy of men who were allowed a lot more freedom who were allowed to you know siphon off the family's wealth to support other women that they were allowed to have sex with that wasn't adultery yeah. Origen was highly respected in his time, known for being a brilliant scholar, teacher, and prolific writer. But his act of getting castrated, which he did because he was teaching women and he didn't want to be in a room with women without being castrated just as a natural precaution against being tempted because you can't be in a room with women without trying to bone them. When we covered Adder Goddess, there was a story like this about a man who had to he had a woman as a co-worker, so he castrated himself. And, and I was like, you know, this is actually a better solution than the Billy Graham rule or whatever. Women are not that interested. They're just trying to live their life, not at you, not to seduce you. The whole Mike Pence controversy when it came out that he wouldn't, he wouldn't be alone with a woman. You know, Mike Pence seems to be under the impression that any of the women who work for him would touch him with a barge pole. I also wonder, like, is their marriage that fragile? Like, has he been... Is there a reason his wife feels she can't trust him? Like, my husband has no, no geeses about being in rooms with women alone. He's an adult who's got, like, I don't know, standards and behaves like a normal person. Like, the bar is so fucking low. <laughs> it's so low. And also, it's just so about making it a woman's problem. And either, like, it's the wife who's very jealous or it's the husband who's like, all women are bad temptresses. 
realistically, Origen was not married at all. Like, he wasn't married. He just felt very uncomfortable alone in rooms with women. So he decided, like a real stand-up hero, to not make it their problem. I mean, look, I guess if you have that much of a problem being alone in a room with women, and you're a teacher, and you're in a position of power, then this might not be the wrong option for you. Like, okay. It may surprise nobody that Origen's act of getting castrated for Jesus was met with a mixed reception in the Christian world. Some people thought only an idiot would take that one sentence of Jesus's literally. Others said it was a mark of extreme faith and to be lauded. Eusebius himself said it, quote, evidenced an immature and youthful mind, but at the same time gave the highest proof of faith and continence. So even Eusebius was kind of on the fence here. And you can understand why. Like, it is quite extreme. Yeah. There were other groups of early Christians who were eunuchs, by the way. One was a group called the Valesians, who were known not only for undergoing self-castration, but also for forcibly castrating people who stayed with them and also random passers-by. And this is very disputed by historians and is probably hyperbole and demonization, let's be clear. But there was this wild story about this one Christian sect who kidnapped and castrated people. Yeah, which is wild, and you can see that that's just propaganda. But anyway. You know what? Crazy things happened back then. Maybe it really did happen. There wasn't much law enforcement. I don't know. Who knows what goes on in in those houses? I shudder even to think what goes on in the average ancient Roman house. Right? (laughs) I've seen the star Spartacus. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, so have I. (laughs) Like, that was just this one guy's house. He had, like, a whole death cult in the basement. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway. So, that brings us to the question. Why would Christians demonize other Christians for choosing castration? Didn't they all put a lot of emphasis on chastity? You would think this would be encouraged and possibly applauded as a profound show of dedication to your faith. Castration was something of a trend among early Christians, as it was with other religions at the time. And it's easy to see why the option would appeal to some Christian men. The early Christians did put a lot of emphasis on celibacy for both men and women, unless they were married, right? There were a lot of eunuchs in the ancient world at this time, people enslaved and forced to be eunuchs, as well as religious eunuchs in religions other than Christianity. In other religions, like the Galli, for example, like the priests of the Megabizoi, castration was seen as a profound act of religious devotion. Why couldn't it be that way for Christianity? I mean, Christianity is still figuring itself out here. I could see, I mean, Jen knows this already. Jen has drunk the Kool-Aid, but like as a non-Christian myself. Jen grew up very Catholic. (laughs) I didn't. And I had to have this explained to me. I was like, yeah, why wouldn't they just want everybody to be castrated unless they were married? Like that makes sense to me. I could see why a lot of early Christian men would be tempted to do this, right? It's not true that eunuchs don't feel desire and can't have sex. They can, they do, but that was the perception. And it basically meant that they could stay celibate without too much of a struggle. And that was exactly the problem. Some did see castration as a profoundly devotional act, but another narrative seems to be, based on Jen freaking out this entire time, that undergoing castration was kind of cheating. You were supposed to struggle with lust and overcome it. Skipping out of that struggle altogether made the whole thing less holy. Yeah, so a lot of this was about temptation, and it was about being able to say no to temptation. It's about having faith in your God and in the fact that, like, you are supposed to struggle with the temptation and say no. If you take away the drive and you take away the temptation, where's your struggle? And if there is no struggle, 
how do you show your faith and how do you show your devotion when you don't have to struggle with it? Like there's a lot that comes down even now. And as soon as Jenny and I were reading this, like every single time in rehearsal, I was like, you can't do that. That's the cheat code. You can't do that. Like, you know, when you get into medieval and later sort of Catholicism, these poor guys who were dealing with their lust were wearing hair shirts and like flailing themselves and like everything else to sort of like combat their lust. And like, there's a lot of guilt and shame attached to different aspects of Catholicism that have to do with your sex drive. That, all the, the flailing and the flagellating and the hair shirts and the self-torture, like that all, that's its own kink, Jen. It is its own kink. And I'm not, I'm not disagreeing with that. But what I'm saying is like the struggle of that, the identity, like that's supposed to be like purifying your mind and body for like the next world. Like that is part of it. I know, but as an agnostic person hearing this from the outside, I just kind of see a really strong thing where your sexuality just gets subsumed into that struggle. So all of a sudden, that's feeding your sexuality instead of denying it. Absolutely. And the reality is, again, as as a lapsed Catholic, I can see how like many of the problems you see later on in the church are because your sexuality is being suppressed and denied and then eventually kind of turned into some weird shit, really. So thinking about what Origen did and thinking about his reasons for it, I'm like, I'm okay with it, but I kind of see the, okay, you're cheating sort of thing, right? Yeah. And and another thing that I see here is that when you look at the sexual environment prior where sexuality was bound to this binary of dominance and submission, which was extremely harmful, I can kind of see Christianity as trying to have ethical sex, like trying to figure out what that was. It really surprised me to understand that there actually would have been things in very, very early Christianity that really would have attracted women. So, in 325 AD, the Council of Nicaea forbade eunuchs from being ordained into the church, although people who were born eunuchs and those castrated for medical reasons could still be ordained. So you couldn't be ordained if you decided to castrate yourself for Jesus. So that's religious castration. But there were other forms of castration that you see in the ancient Greek and Roman world. Enslaved people, for instance, were sometimes castrated. Usually, this would have been done in childhood. These were the puer delicati, young enslaved boys, often castrated, who were purchased as very expensive sex slaves in rich Roman households. They were intimate with aristocrats and even emperors. They had to be masters of emotional labor in order to keep their master's interest and keep themselves alive, and some of them wound up with real power and influence. In the next episode, we're going to tell you all about their lives and how that influence evolved to raise some into the stratosphere of imperial power. In the meantime, catch up with us on Twitter at AncientHistFan or on Instagram and Facebook at AncientHistoryFangirl. And consider joining our Patreon at Patreon.com slash AncientHistoryFangirl. And Jenny, we have some patrons to thank. We do. We apologize in advance to anyone whose name we mispronounce. So thank you very much. To Eric Ouellette, Sarah Page, Jordan, Just Jordan, Claudia Rinaldi, Fergal O'Connor, and I'm sorry, I'm probably going to screw this up, Leomir Vincennes. Thank you so much, and we will see you next week. Hello everyone, it's Takuyi here. And I'm Gabby. 
And we are the hosts of History of Everything, a podcast which you can probably guess by the name is, well, I mean, it's about everything. Do you want to know why people thought potatoes were evil and would give you syphilis? Are you curious about all the stories of the terrible and stupid ways that people have kicked the bucket over the years? Do you want to hear tales about all of the different badasses of history and the lives that they had brought to life? Well, if so, then look no further. History of Everything is just the right podcast for you. It's available on Spotify, Pandora, and anywhere else that you get your podcast from. Join us for some fun and just see how weird and wacky history can be.